We'll follow through this visualization again. First, think of yourself, Swami says, centered in the heart. Relax in the heart. Follow the breath and feel the flow of breath from the heart to the spiritual eye. See the heart center is a shining orb of silver light, reflective like a mirror, sending light out in all directions the way a mirrored ball would do. Visualize that heart as your own and polish it with the power of devotion. Wiping away any thought of self-concern or inner fear. But just relax completely in the shining power of the heart center. See that shining ball of light radiating out in all directions so that the edges of your own body are blurred by the radiance of the light. See that light going out from your heart and merging into the light of all souls, going into the hearts of people everywhere, meeting the illumination of their hearts, strengthening their inner illumination, giving and receiving sharing light, receiving light. Realize that that light that's coming from you does not originate from us as individuals. Expand your vision now to see a great source of light above, perhaps slightly behind us. And we are just a window framing that powerful light, and feel yourself surrendering into that tremendous flow of light of which your heart, made up of these tiny silver surfaces, catches that infinite light and multiplies it thousands of times over and sends it out to be received and multiplied and received and multiplied. All of us riding this great wave of light from the infinite source. So now please repeat after me the affirmation. I will serve thee in all. As extensions of my own true self. I will serve thee in all. As extensions of my own true self, I will serve thee in all. As extensions of my own true self, I will serve thee in all. As extensions of my own true self. Now repeat it silently. 
I will serve thee in all as extensions of my own true self. I will serve thee in all as extensions of my own true self. Om peace. Amen. Oops, are we ready? Do we have the... Yes, Steve has it. I gave you a homework assignment, which some of you didn't remember, but some of you did remember. So I would like to start this evening by asking if any of you have any comments about what you experienced. Okay, does anyone have anything to say? Your your assignment was to act this week as if the karmic law were true and to look at every situation in your life and see if it changed your reactions, if you really believed that karma were true and just and loving. Okay, Sarah. Uh, I've been reading a, a newspaper called the Epic Times a lot and just thinking a, uh, a lot about uh, what's going on there with the uh, communist regime, how uh, terrible they're treating a lot of people, especially the people that follow that um, fallen... You're talking about China? China, yeah. Fallen Gung. Uh, yeah. So you're talking about religion. human rights abuses in China. That's right, okay. yes. That's a good place to test the law That's of karma. Right. And then Let's also, go right to the top. Yeah, and then also a lot of uh, chaos that's happening in Africa, and it's disturbing. And I thought, oh, that regime is, in China especially, is really lousy and bad. But then, after, especially after last week, and even a little bit before that, I thought, well, what about the people that are getting tortured? They may be or part of the earlier communist regime or something that came and were born there to get their karma because who knows what they did in the past and they're really learning their lessons now. Okay. Uh, I think that may be appropriate well, for that. Yeah, I mean, one way to look at it is you can say if somebody is abused, that's because they abused yeah. in the past. Right. And that's not, nece- that's, that's not an untrue thought. The other way to look at it is a person wants to accelerate their spiritual progress, so they put themselves into extremely challenging circumstances. Okay. They could also be expiating, expiating karma that may not be exactly one-to-one, it, you know, because you, you look at people who don't seem to have the qualities of an abuser in them. And I know this always comes down to sexual abuse of children, and especially when you start talking to adults who are treated that way, it's really hard for them to feel that they deserved what happened to them. So I, I'm wanting to just modify that thought, even though um, it's a self-evident thought that if you're being given something that seems very harsh to you, that there's at least a possibility that you expressed something harsh in the past. But if that doesn't resonate or is simply impossible to grasp, you can also say that people are accelerating their progress or they're putting a lot of karma into one life, you know, just challenging themselves on a profound level, or, or expiating a lot of things all at once. I'll take on a really difficult challenge, I'll, I'll try to hold my own against really hard circumstances, and in that way all the negative things that are floating around, I'll just burn them out all at once. So it can be an act also of great courage. It much depends, you know, on how people go through it. Um, Richard Wormbrand was tortured by both Nazis and communists, and he came out a saint. Many people who went through exactly the same thing came out broken. So it's also sometimes it's just like you don't quite rise to the occasion. 
and then you get to try it again until you actually do. You know, Swami doesn't take Novocaine when he goes to the dentist. I couldn't dream of doing it. I just couldn't possibly do it. But we we rarely get to test our, our capacity to experience physical pain. But I've become more stoic about every little thing that happens. You know, so it's like, I can't rise to the dentist chair yet, but I can imagine being able to. And so every little thing that happens, you now I try not to be as squeamish and as freaked out as I used to be. I just deal it with wherever you can. So who knows? You know, every time you get to a certain level, the weight that you're carrying is not enough weight, so you just want more. Once you, once you reverse the thought form that it's all about expanding consciousness and building consciousness, good and bad become very relative. Certainly, though, the people who are doing that are not getting good karma for themselves. They're just setting themselves up for bad experiences. Yeah. Any other thoughts or comments? But it does, Sarah, just, just to say that, because politics is such a freaky thing. I don't even look at the news anymore because it's just, I, I just, too disturbing. Um, but there's, there's forces greater than just human will involved here. And that's one, the other way that you stand back, which is these are great cosmic forces that are being unleashed. And there's plans afoot here that are not always obvious to us. Our little construct of what is and what isn't, you know, is, is not big enough. It's just as simple as that. I, I used to criticize Swamiji sometimes, and then I realized that I would, I, I had, like, my, my vision of reality was about this big. And he would do something that would cross like this. And I would think that, you know, what is he doing? I don't understand why he's behaving that way. And then I realized that his boundaries were not here. His boundaries were way out here. And the the trajectory that I was observing started way earlier, and he saw it going much farther. So that's also another way you look at it. You, You put a picture like this, and you see chaos and destruction. But if you can put a picture like this, you can see how all of that is a way of leading to Yogananda said, to a much more harmonious and settled world. Who can say? Okay, anybody else? You have any thoughts this week? Yes. Steve, could you? Yeah, certainly. Uh-huh. George? Um, just thinking about, I, I really probably don't fully understand what karma is. Sure. I, uh, Join the in, club. <laughs> in, in the definition and the, the material, uh-huh. it says something about um, punishment and reward as, right. as a tool or, or way to help you evolve. But uh, what about uh, what one might judge to be punishment when it turns out to be good ultimately? Um, is, that, well, is that good or bad? I mean, I, okay, think, of it, think about it as training a child. Okay, there's a child, and the child really needs to learn certain things. And sometimes the child just does things that the child itself cannot perceive as either dangerous to its well-being or ultimately the wrong way to go. Telling lies, beating up on other children, not sharing, being selfish, throwing tantrums. The, The parent may be, it may be necessary to discipline that child quite firmly. And if the child keeps resisting, it may be necessary to discipline that child extremely firmly. And the child's point of view is that it's being punished and it's a terrible thing. And, and the child is being punished in the sense that they are having an unpleasant experience that's being imposed on them from the outside. But the result of that unpleasant experience being imposed on them is that they will build the right character. First, they may build it out of fear 
of being punished again, but then gradually they'll build it out of a sense of appreciation for this is the right, the right thing to do. So both are true, that you're being punished in the sense that you do actually suffer. It's not that you're not suffering, but it, if, well, in fact, always, it's being imposed upon us so that first we will be forced into the right action, and then through the experience of the right action, we will experience the benefit of that right action, and then we will choose it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that clarifies yeah. it. Thank yeah. you. It, it, that's why we say Heavenly Father and Divine Mother, because, because Mother and Father are images we get. We, we understand what that looks like. And so if you think about things being imposed upon you as a child, learning the necessary life lessons by, by parents who love you and are ultimately wise then even if you're having a tantrum and just are as mad as you can be about what's happening, if you have the humility and the wisdom, you can say, well, maybe I don't have the whole picture. But you can still say, frankly and openly, this is a God-awful experience and I'm not fond of it. But still, that little part of you says, but maybe I don't have the whole picture. Is that fair enough? Yeah. Any other questions or comments or thoughts? You were not very active this week, or you're not very talkative now. (laughs) Does anybody have any idea what this has to do with uh, manifestation or making money or anything like that? Is there any clue as to what the relationships are going to be here? Rick? Thank you. Yes, we took my mother to uh, assisted living on Wednesday. Uh Uh-huh. And um, she's really sweet to people. Uh-huh. And so I whispered in her ear, it's yours to take care of these people. Uh-huh. And so she's having a great experience now huh. because everyone takes care of her also. Huh. So that was a clear indication of karma to me. Huh. What she puts out, she gets back. Huh. Very nice. Your mother's a little demented, isn't she? Yeah, yeah Alzheimer's. Yeah. But Very she's just as sweet as she can be, and that's what she gets back. Huh. Very nice. My father got sweet when he got demented, too. It was a great relief to all of us. <laughs> he had been a little more agitated prior than that. Huh. Okay. I myself followed my own assignment, and I guess I was in downtown Palo Alto, and there was some woman with a shopping cart full of what must have been valuable things to her, plastic bags full of valuable things on the outside, standing there as if she were talking on a cell phone, but there was no cell phone. Just talking away with great intensity to somebody about something. You know, and there's just this, there she is. She's just living her life, whatever it might be. And I practiced what I said to you all. I just looked right at her. I tried to overcome all sense of aversion. I just tried to just see her for the reality that she's in. It's nothing that's laudable. She's crazy. I mean, she needs to be brought out of that totally subconscious reality she's sunk into. What makes it unwholesome is that it's entirely subconscious. It doesn't have any relationship to anybody else's world. That's a subconscious world. So she's, you know, dove in there for who knows what. You look at a person like that, you realize she was a child once. You know what happened to them. And you try to, um, basically, the technique that I use most of the time is I try to back up. I mean, back up and not back away, but back up from the immediacy of it and try to just look at it like a flow. When you think about China, when you think about what's going on in Africa, you look at it as a flow. Think how many... We, we suffer a great deal in our culture because we don't really know history. I read a quote from Will Durant, who wrote The History of Western Civilization. 
It said we pay much too much attention to the past 24 hours and not enough to the last 6,000 years. (laughs) Which is that we're just not thinking about the longer rhythms of everything. Long rhythms are a very, very helpful concept when you're dealing with current events. Is that they won't be current forever. And when they become history, they just become something else. You know, Swami was talking about the Israeli and the Palestinian situation without... He talks about these things like a world leader himself as a former king and so on. He sort of talks about countries as if he were in charge of one or two of them. But he just made this comment. comment. I loved he's so He's so unsentimental. He said the Israelis just went in there and took it. But they did, he said, and now they have it. And so we might as well all just get used to it. <laughs> how he put it. He said these things happen. You know, every so often somebody goes in and just takes something. And, you know, they felt justified. And there's a whole lot of other more complex reasons. But, you know, China went in and took Tibet. And they've got it. We can put as many bumper stickers on our cars as we want, but they've had it for 50 years. It doesn't even exist anymore. You know, it's just every so often somebody just sweeps in and takes it. And then everything has to go on and on and on. In a very real sense, America came, the Americans, the Europeans came in and took this one. There wasn't a whole lot going on here, but what little there was, we managed to just obliterate them. Just by the way, I have to make a correction of something that I've said quite a few times. For some reason, I got this wrong. I've often spoken of the economic difficulties that America is going to face being the result of our treatment of the American Indians and of the black people. Just recently, Swami was talking about that. He said, Master never mentioned the black people. He never mentioned slavery. He only mentioned the Indians. And at the time, Swamiji himself thought about why did he never mention slavery? And he never asked Master, but here's an interesting point of view. Ram, Ram Smith, who many of you know, he's a, a black man from... He grew up in Los Angeles. He's very dynamically identified with his culture and his race. I mean, not really because he lives completely in the Ananda world, but he has a lot of pride and experience. And he went to Africa a number of years ago now as a representative of self-realization. He went to Nigeria, South Africa, and maybe one other country. And he was really... He's a very... um, for those of you who know him, he's a really, wherever he is, he just moves right into the culture. As someone who was with him said, he managed to make Door of My Heart sound like an African melody. She said, he just did it, you know, and who knows how. He just, he just gets so into whatever's around him. He's that kind of guy. And he really thought he was going to the homeland. And he came back and he said, I never thought I'd say this, but thank God for slavery. He said, I'm so glad I, don't, I wasn't born into that country. He said, it's just so... There's so much trouble down there. It's just there's so much trouble. He said it was to have been brought up to America and into America, even though it was a rocky start. He said it was a really good thing that that happened. And that isn't that was an interesting statement. I mean, no, no one else would dare make it. But he said that, and Swamiji was reflecting. Maybe that's what Master meant, because there is a kind of, well, if you think about it, a karmic curse on the continent of Africa that ha- hasn't been expiated yet. They just seems to be. They, they can't seem to, most of those countries there can't seem to, to get themselves out of this cycle of violence. It just happens. And um, Swamiji has posited the thought that, you know, that, that Egypt and some of those other countries just fell into things that were not so wholesome, and then the whole continent is being purged of that. So a segment of those people, so to speak, were just lifted out of there and brought into the new world, really, and just allowed to have a segment of that race develop in a completely different way than 
was going to go on on that continent. But you see, you just stand back and you think, how do I really know what's going on? How do I really know what the intention is here? Sometimes we get just too rabid on the small issues. So that's also part of it. Now, what this has to do with earning money, everybody, which we're going to work with in a little while, is you have to have really clear energy to have good magnetism. Your magnetism is not something you can fake. You can kind of talk a good story, pretend that this is how you feel, and learn all the right words, and say all the right things. But whatever we actually are as a vibration of consciousness, um, when I've talked about the chakras, I think I talked about a little bit last week, that the, um, you know, from the, uh, from the highest to the, from the base of the spine to the spiritual eye, each of these represents a vibration of consciousness of what we actually experience and perceive to be reality from I am one with the infinite spirit to I am a physical body subject to all the ails of the physical body and I must always be self-protective and afraid. And every, every uh, thing you say, your words do not mask your actual vibration. I mean, we know this if we're sensitive. You know, when, you know when people are just putting you on, shining us on is sort of the phrase that we use. Especially in spiritual communities, you talk about that. Oh, he was just shining me on, you know. But it's like, your chakras don't lie. And that the vibration of your chakras makes your radio signal, so to speak, makes your magnetism. And yes, there's a place for affirmation, there's a, a place for positive attitude, but it has to be balanced You have to be extremely sincere. You have to really stand right where you stand and build from what you have. And whatever level of non-cooperation with what is we have, to that extent, we we put out energy on one level and on another level it's being undermined. And so even if we're not entirely happy with everything that's happening within us, we we can't, uh, the the way Swami puts it, it's like he uses the word complexes. When you have one reality and then you try to overlay it with another one, then you have, a, you have a complex structure. If you merely have a deep desire to have a beautiful home and a, a real commitment to earning lots of money so you can have that beautiful home, that's just a flat desire. You've just got it. And if you want to work for it and get it, well, then you know, you'll get to figure that out. If you lay on top of that, oh, I'm supposed to be a devotee. I really shouldn't want a beautiful home oh, it's really not a good idea for me to earn money. I really just should be a renunciate. I really, I really shouldn't be behaving this way, you know. And then, you know, but my mother really wanted me to uh, get this beautiful home, but Asha doesn't think it's a good idea. But, you know, what does Swami say about it? And then pretty soon you've got so many complex layers that what, what literally happens is you, you set out with an intention and you, you think your intention's going to go like this and you, in your mind it's going like this and it actually goes like that. Because it starts out from wherever you are down in there with a sincere thought, but because you've laid all these complexes over it, it literally just gets deflected. And isn't that what happens to us a great deal of the time? We, we set out in one direction and yet we end up in another direction because we've laid all these different complexes over whatever the facts of our consciousness actually are. And we lay those complexes over... I mean, the law of karma is, it just has to be. It's a fundamental building block. It's everything that comes to me is appropriate. Everything that I am is just the result of what I've done. And then the corollary, which is therefore, if I want the next next day, if I want the next one minute to be different than this minute, it just entirely depends on what I'm doing with this minute. 
And, and nothing really makes any difference. I mean, it's just a question of working yourself out of that maze. And everybody's got one. That's the thing that we have to... In, in the elementary school, Barbara Raven, who's our uh, first, to th- first to third grade teacher now, or second and third, I'm not quite sure what grade she teaches, but she teaches relatively small ones. And sometimes, you know, they get so excited. Somebody's underpants show and they get all excited. Or some child who's less body conscious than the other walks around with their shirt off. And everybody just gets so excited about it. And Barbara says to the children, everybody has a body. You know, every child has a body. If you see somebody else's body, it's not really that shocking, is it? Everybody has bodies. She does say, you know, ladies and gentlemen keep their clothes on when they're in public. She'll explain to them. (laughs) But we needn't get so excited just because we've seen a body. Okay? Every one of us has karma. Because if you're drawn to this planet, you're drawn to this planet because you, we, vibrated with material desires. We wanted intimate human relationships. We wanted to have children. We wanted to have beautiful things. We wanted to have human love. We wanted to have sex. We wanted to have food. You know, just all the things that you don't have without a physical body that, that can be... Those, the essence of those experiences can be had on more subtle levels. But if we're not content with those subtle levels, we want something deeper. We can sit and say, oh, I am one with the infinite universe and all the love of the universe is mine, but it would be nice to have somebody sitting next to me who I could share the love of the universe with, you know? It's just, it's a natural thought. And so, there it is. And, and we must come to complete peace with that because otherwise we're always um, balancing on the surface and we, and we don't have deep foundations. That's why I was wanting you this week, and perhaps you did more than you're willing to share with me, to really look at your life experiences and see where, whether it's people in China or the neighbor next door who plays the television too loud, you know, where the self rebels against what's come and what you can do to bring yourself into peace with that. Because until we're completely settled, we're just not going to have any power. It's as simple as that. Now, is there any comments or thoughts on that before I go on from there? Yes, Jeffrey? Um, in my own life, uh, I used to have a... used to. Sometimes I still do, but I had a very tamasic existence. I was uh, a lot of uh, inertia in my life would slow me down. And I would sleep a lot. Uh, during inappropriate times, and I would watch a lot of television, and I could generally be found to be reclining. And uh, lazy, I guess, is the word that's coming uh-huh. into uh, my thoughts. And <laughs> I, see that, I see that in my own kids, uh-huh. and, and I overcame it to a large degree. Yeah. I overcame a lot of... I, overcame, I mean, a lot of things were overcame, overcome in my life to a large degree. You should take pride in it. You overcame them, Jeffrey. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. That's fine. And um, mm-hmm. now I see my children... You know, always watching television, always laying down, always lazy, always overeating. A couple of them have, you know, become very overweight. And uh, my, you know, I'm a bit obsessed with correcting them on all of this bad behavior. But I I forget that the only way that I could correct, that it could be corrected in myself was by going through it. Right. And so, you know, while, while the parental instinct is still there to try and, you know, correct it, they were probably born into my 
family, you know, as my children, for this very specific karmic lesson that they need to get rid of this laziness. The sins of the father have been visited upon the offspring, huh? Exactly. (laughs) Thank you very much. That's quite appropriate. And then the second quick point I wanted to make is that um, karmically the Jewish people, as I understand it, I just got back from Europe, and I was told that at one point, nobody lent money at an interest, at usury. Yeah. It was just forbidden yeah. by, by, uh, by law. a higher law. You mm-hmm. know, really, people took that very seriously. And the first ones right, to, do so. to do that were like the Medici family and mm-hmm. were like lot, lots of people who came into extreme wealth, like right. beyond. You know, like they had $99,000 for every $1 that existed. And they uh-huh. treated everyone really poorly. The, yeah. the rich people, and as I understand it, that was like, you know, the Jewish people were very predominant in that, being the first moneylenders, among the first moneylenders, and that perhaps, you know, what's coming back is... Uh, well, there's lots of, yes, there's lots of things you can look... Jews are, because I can see, Ram can talk about the black people in Africa, and I can talk about the Jews. You know, Jews are shrewd, and Jews are very creative. I mean, and very, that's a very positive thing, extremely creative. And that's why they're at the top of so many fields, and Sometimes their creativity goes expansively and sometimes it doesn't. But, you know, it's not... Usury is different than lending money at interest. Right. So you can be the merchant, of the, the, the guy in Shylock, or you can just be a good businessman. You can be an honest Vaisha, or you can be a Shylock. It just depends. But yes, if you stand back, you see there's a certain exclusivity about the Jews that does not attract um, support. There's a certain arrogance that does not attract support. Nothing, ju- nothing justifies barbarism. I mean, it's completely absurd to try to trace any actual cause and effect. Plus, you also have to appreciate, this is a very important point, that these group karmas exist. You know, there's Africa, there's being a black person in America, there's being a Jew in Europe. You know, there's all these different things. There's being a German, which was not such a great thing to have been recently. I mean, some of those... People got sucked into some pretty bad actions, which are not going to take them very far. You can be an alternate religious person in China right now, not such a good plan. You can be an orphan in Ethiopia, which is not such a good plan either. But all of these are like karmic potentials. And, and the, those potentials remain, but the same souls don't, go, don't always live there. Just the way Master described it, there's always a king in, of England, but it's not always the same guy. But the job is always there, and somebody souls go in and out of being the king of England, but the, the conditions that make the king of England are sitting there, and for whatever souls it's appropriate, they step into it. So we, from the astral world, we are neither male nor female. We have no culture. We are, we, even though some sects of Judaism say there's such a thing as a Jewish soul, with all due respect, Master disagrees, We just are what we are. All of these things are assumed with the body that we take in. You're born to a Jewish mother, you become a Jewish person. You're born to a dark-skinned person, you have dark skin. But uh, uh, we just look at it and we think, hmm, I think I need to learn, let's say, the the lessons of willpower taken to excess, which becomes arrogance. I think I'll be a German about 19, you know, come to my age about 1940. I'll get to be one of those, you know, those fellows. Another one says, you know, I've just always been dominated. I really like to have power over people. So you, you go someplace where you get to be a, uh, an African warlord and you get to have a lot of power over people. Or you say, oh, I was just so horrible the last time. You know, I just, I, there's not enough I can do to expiate the terrible sin I did. So you get to be born somewhere, you get beaten up all the time. 
until you begin to figure out maybe this isn't such a good plan. You know, maybe I don't really deserve this. I mean, you can see how all the patterns are, and you just look down and you choose. So the difficulty with everybody's golden universe theories is that that's not the point. The point isn't to have this existence here where everything just goes hunky-dory, because this is just a very, this is a school, and you have to have lessons in the school. You don't just go to school just to sit there and, you know, eat bonbons. That's just not the point. The point is you have to be challenged and to get stronger. And so we choose a planet that has the right conditions, and we're born into the conditions that are going to work for us. And again, that's all part of, of how we have to deeply, deeply sink into our genetics. You know, whatever it is that we made, karma came first. You know, you might have a genetic predisposition to become an alcoholic, but you, your karma put you into those genetics. The genetics did not make your karma, because you, you were outside of all of that. Your, your chakras do not have... DNA, is that the right word? Yeah, they don't have DNA. You, your, your chakras bring you into the right DNA. And yes, of course, you may do the same thing for a while, because sometimes one incarnation doesn't do it for you. In fact, people incarnate in and out of the same families. I mean, many people will say, my daughter, she's just like my grandma, probably because she is my grandma, you know, who <laughs> was just so attached to the whole scene that she just scooted right back in there so she could just stay with that same little crowd, died with her pictures all around her and just clutching onto them as soon as she could back into a womb that brought her right back with them. Yes, Jason, you had something to say? If, as encapsulated in delusion as we might be at this moment. Mm -hmm. How is it then that, as you talked about last week in the autobiography and some of our experience, how wearisome it can be to do this drama over and over and over. Anguishing monotony is master's brilliant phrase. Yes, thank you. Uh If we can realize that now in this room, how is it that we leave this body and forget even this much wisdom. If we're in the astral, shouldn't we be smarter and not make the same ridiculous mistake of coming back again and again? If we have this much wisdom now, do we lose it? Well, you're over. <laughs> With all due respect, we only have this much wisdom right now, Jason. <laughs> we don't, you're, 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 we have a lot of wisdom. It's, it's tremendous good karma to have gotten onto this path. So you see, we're already very highly evolved, but our, our, the, the amount of... Okay, let, let, me, I'm not, let me start over from a much more sensible point. Some of this is in the second lesson, so I don't want to go into all of it now, but what you have to understand is karma is just built-up energy. It's, it's a magnetic field that's been created by repetitious action. You know, you just do the same thing over and over and over again, it builds a certain habit pattern in. You know, you're just brushing your teeth. You're not even thinking about it. You're just brushing your teeth. You don't even know what you're doing. And then you think, did I brush my teeth? You know, it's just like... And there's lots and lots of responses we have to life. I've, we have zillions of them. And we've built them up, and they have literally a certain amount of energy. Then we have this idea that, gee, another response would be... Another response would be a great idea. But until that commitment to the new is greater, be this dynamic tension. So we, we, we start toward a realization that... It would be better if. But then we're always in got up at a certain time and meditated a certain period every morning. And we do it great. All of a sudden something happens and we fall off the wagon, even though we were having a fabulous while. And then we manage to pull ourselves back. And so it's always just... And the, actually, at the age that I am now, 
realizing how many things that I didn't understand before I now do understand. I don't want to exaggerate that, but there's, there still is a lot. I'm very different than I was in my 20s. And for me, I was on the path in my 20s, and I'm on the path in my 60s, so it isn't for me like I just came to the path. But what I understood then and what I understand now. But, you know, I'm 40 years older, and there was an awful lot of youth and lack of experience and hormones and all sorts of things that I'm not, they're not my reality now just because time has passed. So am I wiser or just older? And if I were 24, would I have the same understanding I have now or would I have something that looked a lot more like it did then? I mean, it's not like I am actually paranoid about it, but I'm right on the edge of being paranoid about it. So the way I've been playing it out in my mind is just, I I visualize myself. I visualize myself in the astral world. And I visualize myself being a child again in another body. It would be delightful if at the end of my life I I get this big surprise that says, whoa, kid, you don't need another body, but until then I'm just going to assume that I'm going to have another one. And I imagine myself as being three years old, ten years old, fifteen years old, and I remember, because I remember rather vividly a lot of that, I remember what I was doing and why I was doing it, and I project upon that person a, 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 a much wiser perspective on life. You know, I I put myself into my 15-year-old circumstances and I try to have my 60-year-old perspective. And I I just made this up, but I think it's a good idea. It seems to me like a really good idea. Because all of us were born, even this time, mostly, you know, quite a bit ahead of where we could have been, let's just put it that way. Or we came to it at some point, you're all sitting here. So it's a a very valid thought, but the, the thing that you're missing is Merely to, to be able to articulate and feel a certain commitment to something is not the same as having cleaned out every single contrary point of view that you've ever had. Now, this brings me to something that's vitally important, and these are, there are a few things that I really need to talk about tonight that are left in this lesson. And one of them is right at the very beginning of this lesson, Sri Yukteswar talks about, he's quoting Sri Yukteswar, I think. Let me, let me get to where I wanted to say, but he talks about the word kripa, which, is, which means uh, grace. Here it is, right on the first page. The karmic law, though it functions to a great extent automatically, is also guided by universal intelligence and love and can also be intelligently manipulated or diverted. Isn't that wonderful? I love that phrase. I underlined it. Intelligently manipulated or diverted. Hence the concept of divine grace. Kripa in Sanskrit. Kripa can be won above all by divine devotion. And love. Now, what that's saying is, here's the way I've, I always think about this. One of the characteristics of self-realization, as Yogananda teaches it, that is not different than all religions in the world, because Catholics are very devotional especially, and Hindus can be very devotional. It's not like devotion is unknown. But in a lot of spiritual teachings that are more or less part of the same wave that we're part of, or quasi-spiritual teachings these days, there's a lot of times there's a kind of reluctance to talk about God. In fact, I, you know, there's this whole movement called non-theistic spirituality, which is, oh God, it's just oxymoronic as far as I'm concerned, because all we're talking about is we're talking about massive ego spirituality, because if you don't actually have the concept of some power much greater than the consciousness you already have. What are you worshiping? What do you have faith in? 
What is it that you actually expect to help you? Because our real experience is that we are helpless in the face of it. Now, on Sunday at uh, Sunday service, those of you who weren't here, you can go on the internet and hear it because I spoke about this briefly, but I, I spoke about it. You cannot persuade anyone of this. You can't tell somebody there are limits to your own ego. Because if they don't believe it, they don't believe it. It's not even worth trying to tell them. And so there's a whole lot of people out there who are now using relatively uh, enlightened methods of essentially making the ego more and more powerful. We will create a new world. There's vast movements of people who are all getting together to create a new world. It's a teeny-weeny bit, a little bit of hubris there, just a little bit, you know, like, did you, did you make your own body in the first place? Can you heal your own body? You know, can you change the weather? What makes you think that it's just all about our own minds? But if people think that, that's what they think. Years ago, 1989, I think it was, when there was the earthquake here, I've told some of you this before, that I had a, a, a career as a corporate trainer that lasted about that long. And I was right in the middle of it when the earthquake happened. And this woman that I worked with, at the one, one client I had, she wanted me to come in, because uh, the wife of someone in that company had been crushed on the Bay Bridge and killed. And it you know, just sent a shockwave through these hotsy-totsy Silicon Valley, I'm in charge of everything, I'm so clever people because somebody's wife had been smashed on the Bay Bridge and everybody was just absolutely nervous as could be and she wanted me to come in and help calm them down. But of course, we had a rule, which is no God. You can never bring God in. Energy maybe, infinity, if you kind of say it in a soft voice, but no God, absolutely no God. She wanted me to come in there, calm them down. Honey, I can't calm them down. I mean, did you make the earthquake? Did I make the earthquake? Do we know it's not going to happen tomorrow? How can I calm them down if I can't talk about a power greater than their own minds? Can't you just tell them to have faith in themselves? The problem with that is, in the final analysis, they're not going to come through. There's no power there. You have to have faith in something that actually has the, can give you power when you need it, can give you clarity when you need it. Now, Technically speaking, strictly according to Vedanta, it is true, as I was saying in the very first class, the infinite, we will expand to reach the infinite. But if we, because we know that theoretically, and see, Jason, this is the part where we have to realize, just because I know that, just because I can write and speak really, really cleverly about how I am one with the infinite, when I walk down the street, I am not one with the infinite. I can't read other people's thoughts. I can't feel their bodies. I can't move, move them. I'm not satisfied when they eat. I am myself. I am this one limited body. Thank God I do know something. And thank God I have a kind of intuitive movement toward it. But to be perfectly honest, and this is what's so essential, who's, who am I kidding? I live in my consciousness and I aspire toward the other, and therefore it will come to me. But for all practical purposes, there's me and there's God. And the difference between me and God is pretty darn self-evident to me. The difference between me and the Masters, the difference between me and Swami Kriyananda, the difference between me and Jyotish, I don't have to go really far. You know, it's just really easy to see that, that people are more advanced than me. And you just take that forward, and you develop profound and deep devotion. Above all, you, you develop devotion to this reality that we call God because we, we torture the language to find another word for it. Satchitananda is really the word, ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new bliss. 
That's an existing word. That's a glorious word for God. Because that's what we all want, ever to be eternal, to be free of death, to be aware of our freedom, and to be aware in a state of joy. That's what we strive for. But you see, when we humble ourselves, and this is where devotion, devotion can be attracted, grace can be attracted by divine devotion and love, which is grace is not whimsical. Grace is a response to the energy that we put out. And grace is that loving intelligence which is running the game, just moving in at the right moment and helping us through this, helping us by giving us the right inspiration, helping us by literally sending angels to come, helping us by doing miracles. All of those things are what happen, helping us by giving us a sort of source of courage that we didn't know we had. When, you know, when the moment comes, we just suddenly are something we didn't know we could be. But that comes to us when we have the receptivity and the humility to receive it. If we're so busy being powerful all by ourselves, there's just no room. God just says, okay, let him, let him play it out. Now, there's another element to this. Okay, let's take a very short break. I was saying, and the thing about it is that uh, one of the ways to understand grace, which is really a powerful way to do it, the point is this. <laughs> this is about how grace trumps karma, and that's the important point we're trying to make here. Um, when we are progressing through many different incarnations and we set energies in motion. Some of you have heard this illustration before, but it's the only way and the best way I have to say this. When you do something like, let's say, you take your brother's inheritance. Let's say you have a a strong desire. um, You covet your brother's wife and you manage to get his wife away from him and he has to leave the family and is very unhappy. Let's say you're you know your children need something, but you're selfish about whether you're going to give it to them or not. You use your children for your own aggrandizement. You know, just all the different things that we do. Um, or you see an opportunity to help someone, but you're too afraid to help them. Protect yourself instead. It can be subtle. It can be gross, whatever it is. When we, when we do something that is contrary to our long-term happiness, see, that's how you have to think about it. Our long-term happiness lies in gradually elevating our consciousness to an actual experience of our oneness with all people. I serve others as extension of my own self. I am a radiating orb of light, and that light goes out and touches everyone. We're doing these beautiful visualizations because we are affirming that which is true. When I teach meditation, one uh, beginning meditation classes, when I used to teach them, I would say to people, look, you can be, go somewhere where people will teach you to meditate, so-called, by sort of having you lie down or sit up and you visualize a beautiful scene. Oh, I'm out in a meadow and then this great white horse comes and I get on the back of the white horse and we gallop through the flowers. And It's very relaxing. It's good to train your powers of visualization, but there really is no meadow or white horse or marigolds to gallop through. It's just not happening, right? But you're using your imagination to go to it. Now, when we're meditating in in the way that's um, toward self-realization, the path of Kriya, and you're concentrating on the breath, and you're elevating your consciousness, you're listening to the Om, and you're working with the chakras, you're actually moving yourself towards something that's actually there. You see, it's not like... You might have to use the powers of visualization 
to put your consciousness in tune with it, but you're putting your consciousness in tune with something that's actually there. Even if at first you're just projecting your devotion upon the pictures of the masters or imagining that master is sitting with you, the fact of the matter is, master is an infinite consciousness and he will sit with you if you put yourself in tune with it. So it's very, very different than just creative relaxation, creative visualization. Now, the power of this intelligent, loving being, what I was starting to say with all this is, the law of karma is to teach us where our true happiness lies. It's not an imaginary thing. Even if in one lifetime or two lifetimes or ten lifetimes, we don't quite catch all the way up to the fact of it. The fact of the matter is, as long as we move against our true nature, we will continue to crash up against something that will hurt us. People are always saying, why do I suffer? Why does this not work out? Why don't I get what I want? Why? You know, like this. Well, it's because you have tried to find lasting satisfaction in something that simply couldn't give it to you. Why did I eat this apple and now the apple is gone? I wanted to eat the apple and have the apple there. You know, just like children. Where is the apple? Where is the apple? Honey, you ate the apple. But I want the apple. I want the apple. I mean, it's just lunatic. That's how we look to the saints. I want it my way. Okay, but it can't happen. So we just get the consequences of that, right? So there is this loving intelligence that is constantly guiding our experiences, magnetism to magnetism, to a certain extent, it's automatic. But because it, it's, there is this loving intelligence which exists, from joy I came, for joy I live, and sacred joy I melt, it's, it's always a potential for us to attune to that and begin to receive it, that Satchitananda. Now, when we do these wrong things, wrong because they are not ultimately happiness-producing, simple as that, it sets in motion you know, a, a wave of energy that's going to necessarily boomerang back to us. Because we've put out this kind of energy, it doesn't go away, because we, we have an ego identification with our actions, it's going to come back and hit us. And because of the thwarting cross-currents of ego, we're not fortunate enough to do something bad and have it hit us just like that. It gets delayed sometimes for a long time, especially as we get more and more powerful. We can outrun our karma for a long time. And it takes a while for it to finally hit us. But sometimes, between the time that we first do what often might be even very bad actions, we have a lot of other experiences and we begin to wake up. And some of our other karma catches up with us and we begin to figure out, wait a minute, you know, there's, we get out of the revolt, we get into the quest and we learn something. And maybe even we get so wise that we begin to under we begin to experience this infinite power, we become devotees, maybe we even attract a guru. There's all these things that happen to us. But in the meantime, all of this other stuff that we set in motion is inexorably marching toward us. And we're going this direction and it's, you know, closing in on us. But it may well be that by the time it actually catches up to us, we have essentially learned those lessons. You know, we've, we've mastered it through other means and it's just no longer necessary to lose all our money. 
It's no longer necessary to be in a terrible train wreck. It's no longer necessary to have our beloved child die because we know. So what happens is divine grace, usually in the form of the guru, that's the guru taking your karma, when just as the energy is about to hit you, the guru leans over, hits him in the back, and maybe he knocks against us a little, but we're spared. And that's often why Master described, a guru will take onto his body all of these different physical symptoms of negative energy, really. Yogananda, toward the end of his life, his, his knees were terribly affected and he couldn't walk a lot of the time. And he said it was just the karma of his disciples. He was just leaning over them and as their negative energy came, came to fruition, he just absorbed it into his body because it didn't affect his consciousness it had to go somewhere, so it went into him. And he, he, he saved you from it. Now, devotion is what attracts that to us. When we begin to recognize that there is a power greater than ourselves, you see, that's the beginning of, of what's going to make us eternally happy. As long as we're deeply identified with this little ego and the body and all of its realities as the be-all and end-all of existence, we're going to be subject to all of those limitations and all the suffering that that's going to entail. Here I am all alone in the world and things happen that I can't control. You know, I can't make you love me. I can't make my children be what I want them to be. I can't make my body even be what I want it to be. It, it, it weirds out in all kinds of ways. It gets old, it gets sick. It does all kinds of strange things. So we begin to seek for something higher. And as soon as we begin to identify with something higher, the body still runs its story. But we're not, our identification has gotten so much bigger that even though it's still running its story, even though the ego is even still running its story, it's like it's, we're, we're, we're dealing with a screen this large and the little ego is just running its little thing here. It's quite different than when you're living here. When you live here, everything it does is just like that is it. There's nothing else. But as soon as we can live, it, it can stay the same size. This is, this is not gospel. This is Asha's theory of expanded consciousness. After years and years of trying to make myself better, I finally decided you don't ever get better. You just get less interested in yourself. <laughs> and you become a, a smaller and smaller proportion of the whole. And because your perspective gets larger. And that's another way of saying you get better. Because once you're not so worried about yourself, you automatically get better. And then if you're sick or well, or nice or not nice, and if you mess up or don't mess up, and you just don't agonize about things. That's part of my when I was 24 versus when I'm 62. You know, I used to agonize about everything. Just agonize all the time. You know, my, my friends would come and try to pry my, you know, pry my hands away so I could see something else. And as soon as they let go, I'd go like that again. You know, it was, I was a trial to my friends. Did you have a question, Raman? So what you just said, um, earlier you said, is it because I'm getting older or because, and wiser, or is it because... Is my soul getting it, wiser? In or other words, just, if we yeah. went back, yeah. would... Well, that, I mean, is that a question now? That's a question. Is Well, I mean, I, I think, to be perfectly honest, my soul's getting wiser. How much uh, wiser is the question? I don't mean just you. I just mean... <laughs> All of us? <laughs> Me. <laughs> you mean like 
Like, not just me? This just isn't about me? <laughs> you mean you're actually interested in yourself? Oh, I'll have to just stop. Let me see if I can... But I sometimes think is this the wisdom of old, older age? And then if you come back into that strong, you know, good body, you know, that can okay, Ramani, run faster. <laughs> you have been a good devotee for a long time. So speaking of you, I'm sure you have learned a lot. No, I'm just, I'm speaking. But many people learn nothing. You're absolutely right. They just play out their youth they lament the loss of it during old age, and then they die, and they just start over. Or the people learn, we learn very, very slowly. To, merely to pass time in a human body is not the same as progressing spiritually. Master said that some people who are manifested at the beginning of an age of Brahma are still wandering in delusion when the age is withdrawn. And then when it's time for a new age of Brahma to start, they're just re-manifested again. That's I have no idea what that time span actually is, but it's a really long time, and that's a really, really scary thought. Once you reach the human level, you have enough free will to either go toward the light or away from it. I mean, nobody in this room is sitting there because we've already seen the light and we're moving toward it. But it's not automatic. No, you can just sit out. So you can wait a long time. So, but, but... You do learn something. See, this is what Master says about Kriya. One round of Kriya, which is one cycle of the breath through the chakras, in essence, is equal to one year of right living in which you don't do anything wrong to create more bad karma for yourself, right? But if you don't live rightly, which very few people do, you create a little bit of forward progression, a little bit of backward. That's why Kriya moves things along so well, because you dissolve the vrittis directly. And you don't have to just wait until you figure it out by external suffering, right? But now grace comes in, and grace lifts your consciousness. See, many things happen with grace. I was drawing the metaphysical picture of the guru leaning over you and taking the karma. The other thing that happens with grace is when you're living in a devotional way, and the next paragraph is about giving to others. I mean, we once we begin to recognize this power greater than ourself, we also begin to perceive that that power is within us, and therefore if that power is within me, it's probably also in all of you, isn't it? You know, this is the big moment when we realize that it's, it's about how we are made. It is not just me, you know. You, you get into these some of these teachings, you know, channeled teachings and things like that, and Sometimes people say, well, how can you tell if it's true or not? Well, you know, if the channel is telling you how really special you are and how really lucky you are and what a really extraordinary soul you alone are, it's a little suspect. You know, what you want is that teaching which tells you that we are part, all part of the same infinite and that that divine dwells in all. Because then what we're doing is we're both elevating our sense of self but in the very act of elevating ourselves, we're expanding our identity to include everyone in that elevated state. And that's why in this lesson, I give to others, I serve others as an expression of my own self. You see, we're beginning to take this karmic bondage that we're in, which is all based on identifying and emphasizing the importance first of this little self at the expense of all others, as if 
I could get for myself, take away from them, and actually gain. You see? It's like saying, aha, left hand, you don't get the apple. Right hand, you're the only one who gets the apple. No, 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 left hand, no apples for you. All the apples are for the right hand. And like, this is progress? Like, what are we doing here? But that's precisely what we're doing when I take from you to take care of myself. I take from you. I don't care about your happiness. This is what I want. We're trying to make ourselves happy by just favoring one hand over the other. There's no difference. Now, first we know that philosophically. Then we know that intuitively from just a glimpse. And then we actually know that. And we just feel it. You, you, you see the hurt in someone's eyes and you can't do it. I mean, unless you know that you're acting as an instrument for their, their higher good, which, of course, you have to be real careful about that. But you understand what I'm saying. If it's a selfless action on your part, not a selfish one, that causes you to do that. But you see the hurt in their eyes. It's the same as the hurt in your eyes. This is what you're thinking about those poor people in China. You know, it, it, that's a, it's an expanded consciousness. But then you have to go a step above that. And you have to really say, Divine Mother, you're in charge of this. But you see, without devotion, you go completely crazy. I mean, and people do go crazy because they begin to sense that they're part of all of this, but they don't yet lift it to Satchitananda. And so you have to go all the way to the end of that. But once, I was, I was wanting to say, once you begin to have the devotion to be able to sense the divine love and intelligence behind it all, then all of these other vrittis that you've built up over a long time, they just dissolve in that perception. You see? I'm lonely, I'm afraid, what's going to happen? But then by your devotion, you're lifted up into this perception of reality in which those states of consciousness no longer exist. And even if you slip back, a piece of you still remembers. Just a little piece of you still remembers. And it's like the tide coming in. Every so often one wave gets way up on the beach, you know, and then it takes about a thousand other waves and they're all just small. And then another one gets all the way up. Except in this case, the tide just comes in. It doesn't recede again in the, in the point, from the point of view of realization. So to a very real sense, even though I'm semi-joking about youth versus my present age, there are certain things that we know that we will never forget. We just can't forget them. They're just who we are now. But they have to be constantly reinforced by action. You know, and then you come back to the other side of it. And next week's lesson is all about action. You, know, you just have to keep doing the right thing. And you have to keep doing it over and over and over. Because you need to build new patterns within ourselves. This is why I ad nauseum talk about things like tithing and service you know we've just got to keep building that deep within us those ideas now um, so that was about devotion trumps karma I think I covered that but I know I want to go into the last point and this is again for this class is he always ta- also talks in this about gratitude and generosity and both of those are the spontaneous natural expression of this devotion. Once you begin to see, once you begin to feel your life as a divine gift, once you begin to sense the power behind your life, then it's not a strain anymore to want to help others. It's, it's just like 
Why would you not? Where does the, what, what gives us the greatest happiness? Sometimes you have to discipline yourself. You know, you have to make a conscious decision that I will be generous, even if I don't always feel like being generous. You know, I made rules for myself a long time ago. You know, if somebody needs something, even if I want to keep it for myself, you know, you just pass it on. You just do it. Because when you can give to others, Master says, with the same happiness that you buy for yourself, then you have really transferred your sense of identity. So he says in here about, I love the phrase, be generous within your means. Because one of the things we also can't do is we can't affirm something that isn't ours. I mean, it's no great act to give away something you don't own. (laughs) Right. Or to make promises that just cause chaos for your life later. So above all, what he says is you have to keep a generous heart. Have a generous desire for other people to be joyful. Have a generous desire for other people to be well. And every time we let our consciousness suffer, even because other people are suffering, I don't mean compassion, that's quite different, but actually to become depressed and unhappy, what are we giving? And what a way to respond to life. Uh, Swamiji writes in here, I talked about this on Sunday too, that gratitude is not really an attitude that we have toward anything. It's that when we feel the natural joy of our own nature, then what else would we be but grateful? Isn't that how you feel? Somebody invites you to their house. You have a wonderful evening. Thank you so much for putting together this party. It was just such a joy to be here. Somebody gives you a present, you know, that's just so thoughtful and that nat- you're so joyful to see it. The natural thing is to say, thank you for giving this to me. And also, he says in here so sweetly, gratitude is self-ennobling. Isn't that a marvelous phrase? Self-ennobling. Even if Swami's talking in there about returning goodness for hatred. But he said, when you radiate the right consciousness, then you ennoble yourself. And so it's not really about whether people around you deserve gratitude, whether they're good, whether this was really a good thing or not. It's just that if we recognize, first of all, you see, it comes back to the law of karma. There's this loving intelligence behind everything that happens. And just like a child reaches a certain point where they realize how lucky I was to have parents who who made me toe the line like that, and you come back at a certain point and you say thank you, because you see what you've gained from that and you naturally are grateful for it, how could you not be? Only an unrefined nature would not be. But so why not bring that down to a moment-to-moment reality? But first you have to feel the joy of that loving intelligence taking care of you, which means you have to stop rebelling against what comes to you and see it as the gift that it is. And as soon as it's a gift, then gratitude's what you feel. And as soon as you sense how much God is taking care of you, you just have this eager desire to be part of the story. And this, this, uh, And this is where the affirmation comes in, which is such a nice one. You know, I serve others, I give to others, I will serve thee. He says it even differently. You're serving God in other people. I recognize the divine in myself, and therefore I see that the divine is in all, and for that reason, I give to all of them as manifestations of my own true self. 
Isn't that marvelous? Meditate on that this week. Manifestations of my own, it says, true self. You see, because you're teaching yourself at the same time, clearly you're not manifestations of my ego. That's what people say sometimes. I create the whole world. You're all just a manifestation. Please spare me. You know, they are manifestations of that which manifested you. You know, we are an expression of that infinite in Gali Shuk, so are all the others. Where did they come from? If I came from the infinite, they probably came from the infinite too. And if we all came from the infinite, that makes us brothers and sisters in a really profound way, doesn't it? And one of Swami's images in one of his new little books is Christmas lights. We're all Christmas lights. And we all have different shapes and little different colors, but it's the same electricity that illuminates us all. I loved that one for some reason. And none of us really glow with anything. We just made a little shape around it, didn't we? And we might have different colors or different shapes. Some of us are little candy canes, some of us are little bells, some of us are little little pointy things. You know, we're all just that. But we're just nothing except that that electricity comes through. And all of us on this little row, we're all just shiny little lights. If we, and you know, or we can break our bulb if we want to and, and keep it from shining. But isn't that a sweet way to look at it? And if, if that's what's illuminating me, that must be what's illuminating everyone else. The practice of genuinely accepting and loving people, not for their personalities, but for the spirit behind it. It's a, it's a very interesting practice. It's also, Swami writes about that here, talking about the great troubles he had. I'll tell you about a, a very odd experience I, have, I had, and then I'll, uh, I'll end for the night. I found myself at a certain position in my life trying to do something that was a little scary for me, and I became very frightened of it. It was a physical effort that I didn't usually exert. I was trying to learn to scuba dive. And I had a sort of slightly bad experience when I first started, and so I got a little scared of it. So when I came back, I, I was really, really scared. But I was determined to do it because it was such a focused point of fear that it seemed like a good thing to try to overcome. So I didn't feel that I could duck it. I mean, you don't have to scuba dive. It's just, but there I was. But I was so afraid. And I was lying awake all night, you know, knowing that the next morning we were going to go out. I mean, this is supposed to be fun. I'm just like terrified. And uh, I kept thinking, why doesn't God have mercy on me? You know? I, kept do- I used every technique I could think of, and I was still terrified. The oddest thing came to me. I thought of a couple of people in my life whom I hadn't had a lot of compassion for. And I thought, that's why, you- that's why God's not taking care of you right now. It was just as clear as day. Just like, you put out meanness, and now you need compassion. You're not going to get it either. Whoa, it wasn't like God wouldn't have given it to me. It was like, it was more subtle than that. It was like, let's see, because I hadn't entered into the stream of compassion, I had blocked that stream. Is that the way to say it? Didn't do anything. I mean, I did go out and I did scuba dive and I discovered that it wasn't so scary and I did enjoy it. I just got over the fear. I focused in and got over the fear. And then when I came back, I started being so nice to those people. I said to David later, they they probably have no idea what's going on, you know. But I just like, but it it became a generic learning curve for me. I just thought, this is how Swami put it. You close anyone out of your heart, and to that extent, God closes his heart to you. Isn't it just as simple as that? 
But not everybody's lovable. Some people are honestly icky. There's just no way around it. They're just icky. They're, they're unpleasant. They're boring. They can be really obnoxious. They can be mean. They can be all kinds of really ghastly things. When I was trying to learn this, this was so perfect. God sent me this man. I think he, he was Croatian or some country that was big. And he was about six and a half feet tall. His sense of personal space was zero. His, his concept of talking to a person was about, you know, do everything but smash them up against the wall, which is not my idea of personal space. So this man who was six and a half feet tall would put himself about here, except he would lean over me like this. <laughs> <laughs> and he would talk to me like this for long periods of time. He had lots of things he needed me to hear. You know, but I thought, close your heart to anyone and you close, God closes his heart to you. And I would just stay there and I would just think, you know, nothing is actually happening. He's not beating me. He, he doesn't, he's not imprisoning me. He's not picking my pockets. He's just talking to me. He just wants me to relate. And it was just, it was a marvelous exercise, just breathing in and out, just thinking, you know, despite the fact that he might not be attractive to me, He's the same divine spirit I am. It was an incredible exercise. I learned so much, and I grew to like him extremely well. You know, his personality remained just the same. But I I just grew to like him. First of all, he was a wonderful teacher. And secondly, the divine spark within me is the divine spark within you. It's It's an extraordinary practice, and it does so much to begin to put us where we're trying to go. You know? It's really marvelous. And, but we have to be generous within our means, and that doesn't just mean money. You know, I, I, I'm able to, I was able to stand under the shadow of this man and let him yell at me for long periods of time because I've worked up to it slowly by talking to so many lovely people, you know. <laughs> Some of you might need to just bless him from a distance, but at least bless him from a distance, you know. And so this week, seek at least to see and if possible, serve, at least with your consciousness, everyone that you meet because of the presence of God within them as an extension of the divine within you. Okay? All right. God bless you. See you next week.